Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you wanna learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo. And for this show, I talk with professional multifamily artists and discuss how they found their rhythm and dive into their own sound investments. So for today's guest, he's coming all the way from New York. He has a master's degree in Spanish and education. He spent the last 15 years as a middle school Spanish teacher. He's a general partner for the Small Axe Communities and also the host of the Small Axe Podcast co-host of the Multifamily Investors Network Meetup. He recently closed on 194 units in Columbus, Ohio. He's an investor, entrepreneur, coach, mentor, surfer, woodworker, husband, and father. Please give a warm bienvenidos to Nico Salgado. <laughs> Thanks, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you. I like the bienvenidos that you threw in that little Spanish spice. I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> did, did I use that correctly? A warm bienvenidos? Is, is there a way to, a better way to say warm welcome? No, that's it, man. It would be bienvenido with, without the S just because I'm one person, but I, I think it was excellent, man. I love uh, it. <laughs> thank you. Still trying to work on my Spanish. It's been since, uh, <laughs> since high school, since, <laughs> since I've learned. So there's definitely something you can teach me, but today we're not learning about Spanish. We are learning about multifamily and how you invest. So, I mean, first let's, let's start off with how you got uh, with a little bit more about yourself and how you got into to real estate in the first place. Yeah, man. So, I mean, I, 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 like you said, I'm a school teacher and I've been teaching for, this is actually my 17th year now. And I, um, you know, you know how much you're going to make as a teacher. There, there's a, there's like a, a cap of how much you can make. I, I maxed out all my credits above my master's. I earn as much as I can. I coach two seasons throughout the year. I work during the summers and I coach prior to school. And then I teach teachers after school. There's, It's like I maxed out completely. I know how much I can put into my retirement account. I know how much I'm going to make from now until retirement and afterwards. And it's just not enough to, you know, secure a comfortable lifestyle for me and my family. Wow. So, yeah, man. So after that realization, it's like I found myself busting my butt all day, every day, all year long. You think, you know, as a teacher, you get all this time off, but I had no time off. I was working way too much just to try to make ends meet. So I started looking at other avenues of income and I got into woodworking. You know, I, I, I have a wood shop and I started making items in my wood shop to try to sell to people. And it worked out really well for a couple of years, but I, I realized that that was just another job, you know, and I kept tacking on jobs and, I, and, and even after doing the wood shop for two years and being successful at it, I said, why don't I just, you know, work as a waiter? I used to wait tables. I can do that. But again, it's another job. I said, you know what, this has to stop. I need to do something that is going to create wealth for me because I only have so many hours in a day. There's only so much you know, time, only so many hands I can use to make money. And I realized at that point that it really had to be something, you know, buying an, an asset that was going to give me income, right? Sim similar to, or basically the same concept that Rich Dad Poor Dad preaches, mm -hmm. you know? And I said, what's the best way to do it? Real estate. What am I excited about? Real estate. You know, I, I dabbled <laughs> in real estate in the past and, <laughs> and it came down to that. So I started looking, you know, 
a few years ago, 2017 or 18, I started looking at um, duplexes, you know, to try to buy with my brother and with a couple of friends here where I live in Long Beach, New York. And prices are a minimum of six, 650,000. And, you know, and, and I, and I said, you know what, we can get one, me, my brother and a friend of mine, we were like, we can buy one, but then what's, what about the next one? And it's not going to provide enough passive income for me to survive off of. It's not going to give me more than a couple hundred dollars a month. And then the next one, I wouldn't even be able to save up, up enough money to buy for another 10 years. I said, this is just not the way either. And I found multifamily real estate just through talking to people on bigger pockets and, and I, and somebody actually from the Jake and Gino community reached out to me. They found me on bigger pockets and they were like, Hey, do you know about multifamily? What do you know about multifamily? Would you like to learn more? And I said, hell yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> and that's how I got involved with the Jake and Gino community. Oh, okay. And so, so with the Jake and Gino community, I mean, for the, for those that don't know, can you go into a little bit more about what that community is and what that community provided for you? Cause I, cause I always hear that, you know, when we're, we are going into a new community, it's always nice and it's always motivating to, to surround ourselves with like-minded individuals. Right. So like, why, why, why Jake and Gino? And what, what has it provided for you? Yeah. So after, well, I, after I was convinced that I wanted to do multifamily, you know, by talking to people in bigger pockets, talking to, uh, I think it was Dylan McGow at Jake and Gino, mm -hmm. I then interviewed with a few different mentors, realizing that I couldn't do. So first, first of all, there was there had to be a realization: can I do multifamily? Yes. And then, how do I make it happen, or how do I do that the best way possible? And it came down to me needing a mentor or a mentorship program, and I interviewed with a few people, you know. Joe Fairless, uh, Greg Dickerson, and mm -hmm. then the Jake and Gino team. And the Jake and Gino team fit best with my style. And they provided three things, whereas the other guys didn't provide these three things. So what the Jake and Gino platform for me provided was number one, an educational course, right? It's called the Wheelbarrow Profits Program. So they have a, it's like a, an academy where you, where you just go through all the coursework. They provided a mentorship program also which the other two also provided, but they also provided an excellent network of people to be in touch with and to, you know, a community of people to be a part of. And all three of those combined, uh, along with the stories of Jake and Gino being from a similar background to me, uh, coming from New York and having similar mindset, I felt like I, they, that was the team I wanted to join. So I did, I signed up with them. I literally after, so I spoke with Dylan McGow and then I spoke with wow. Josh Rusin, who's the second interview. And literally that day I just signed up and, and two days later I was in Atlanta for the first boot camp, <laughs> and it was awesome. <laughs> and from then on, it was like, it was like, I just jumped on a rocket ship and I was gone. Yeah, no, those guys are awesome. I've had a couple conversations with them and they, they are, they're so supportive. And I feel like they actually just care about your growth as an investor and then also as a person. You know, and, and in this business, something that I've also realized too is just how supportive the whole multifamily investing community can be. Um, I'm sure there's definitely like other people that are sharks and they're they're not they're very competitive and not wanting to give away their secrets. But you know, it was when I was talking with students like you and then also with other people within that community, it it was sort of weird how everyone was sort of giving off all of their information. And so um, I can definitely see that as as a, as a benefit on your journey, right? I do want to dive into, you know, the idea of a mentorship though, because something that I, when I was on bigger pockets 
and looking and, and on the forums and looking at, you know, different topics, one of the topics that came up with is in most, like, don't, don't pay so much money for a mentorship, right? Um, oh, there's a, as much information as you can learn online for free. You know, it's, oh, it's not worth it. And they're just trying to make a buck off of you. Like, was that what you were feeling as well? Or like, what was the direction that you wanted to take in, in order to get to that mentorship? Like, why? Yeah. So it's funny. All right. In the beginning, so I, jo- I joined in November of 2019. And for okay. that summer prior of 2019, I found I was trying to do everything on my own. And I was trying to keep everything a secret, kind of like what you said. And I found <laughs> this, this project here in Long Beach, where I live. And it was basically, uh, it would have been a new development project. We had to, it was like somewhere where I was going to knock down um, seven townhouses and try to build like a 20 something million dollar um, complex either condos or an apartment complex and i and i was so involved in my own head thinking that i'm going to keep this a secret and nobody knows about it i'm going to make millions that i never really got anywhere with it even after talking to the right people i talked to the right contractors who do who do construction around here i talked to the building department to the right people in the building department they were like yes mm-hmm. you can do x y and z but I, there was no possible way for me to execute on it and and my actual intention of joining the Jake and Gino community was to find somebody to help me take down that, <laughs> that complex. And it turns out that that wasn't even a good deal. So I was after, you know, being in the mentorship program for a little, little while, I realized number one, that wasn't a good deal or the right project for me. And thank God I didn't pursue that in any way because I would have been screwed, you know? So the mentorship program, once I got into the mentorship program, I, my whole thought process was like, I need to get, get this, get into this program so that I can find somebody to help me do X, Y, and Z. And it turns out that everybody else was just providing me with value. And then I was like, oh my God, they just, it changed my mindset from me, me, me helping myself to holy crap, that here's a whole community trying to help me and guiding me in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And that's where it, it led me to start thinking differently and start thinking that multifamily is better than a new development project for, especially for somebody who's brand new and a team with support systems is much better than doing it on your own because I spent literally almost two years researching on my own and I got nowhere. You know, I, 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 I literally didn't buy anything. You know, I, I, I got no traction and I ended up getting nowhere. But once I joined the team, I found so many flaws in my approach just by listening to people. And it all came from a positive and good place and, and, and a place of guidance and support rather than a place of belittlement. You know, they were, nobody was trying to belittle me. They were like, wow, you should do X, Y, and Z instead of what you were, what you were thinking in the past. And the mentorship program really opened up my eyes to the fact that I need to be open to sharing all my ideas and and projects with other people and whoever can compliment me and, and assist me will and not being, you know, secluded in my own little world of like, I can handle everything <laughs> because it's just, it's literally impossible. You can't, you, you know, I found out quickly that multifamily was definitely a team sport and you need the assistance and guidance of others. Yeah. That, you know, that was, that was definitely the, my mindset going into this as well. Um, with, with the fact that I, I didn't realize that there were so many different team members on when, when acquiring a multifamily asset, you know, you have your deal finder, you have your asset manager, you have your capital raiser, you have your sponsor. Uh, there's so many different moving parts that it's like, if you're just trying to do everything on your own, you're, I feel like you're just bound to miss something and it can, and it can hurt you in the end. And there's going to be a hard lesson, but I think having that mentorship and surrounding yourself with 
you know, a community that has done this is, uh, is extremely beneficial to, you know, they mm-hmm. want your back and, um, and they, it's very supportive. There's something yeah. I did want to touch on though, uh, when you said that the, the new development wasn't a good deal. Right. And something for me, and and I'm assuming over in New York as well as living in California, there's not a lot of good deals, but I feel like there's, there's some good deals to other, but it, to others, but it's an appreciation play where, you know, you try and buy in an up and coming place if in, in San Francisco or New York, and, you know, you just hope it goes up years from now, but if it goes up like 200 grand, great, that's a great deal, but that takes however many years. So in your opinion, can you describe to me a nice, like multifamily, like a solid deal? Yeah. Well, so it depends on how we're going to purchase it. Uh, so I, the, the Columbus property we did was 194 units and we did it as a syndication mm-hmm. and okay. we're actually looking at, you know, we're always looking at deals and, and typically if it's a smaller deal, we'll look at it as a JV partnership between a few people. And I'm kind of tapped out on, on resources. So I, that's really not even an option for me. So let's uh, approach this from the thought process of syndicating a deal. Okay. So when I'm looking at a deal, we're looking at a minimum of like a 15, 16 IRR. We're looking for an equity multiple of about two, right? And uh, somewhere around there, obviously, if you hit two, it's great and easy to tell somebody, hey, we're going to double your money in five years. And we typically do a five-year hold. We're looking for cash on cash anywhere from six to 8%. And, uh, and, you know, the average uh, annual return, we're looking for 20 plus percent, you know, so numbers that, that would be attractive to people being that I am a, a new syndicator, you know, this was the first deal for me and I had to come in and, and, and share, share the deal with my investors and raise capital for it, you know, and, and it's difficult to show any, anything, <laughs> any track record when I, it was my first deal, you know, so I had to leverage the track record of my, uh, you know, my partners, partners. on this one. Yeah. And also show them, look, these are what the num- this is what the projected numbers are. And I'm not the, you know, the, the chief underwriter here. This, we, we had a financial guy doing the underwriting for us. And yes, I double checked it. And, um, and this is just really what our returns are. So we're always looking for a minimum of 15 IRR, you know, cash on cash, like I said, six to 8%. If we can hit a two equity multiple, I think that's a fairly good sell for people. Something that I, th- I thought was really interesting about this is if you if you brought these parameters to New York, it would I feel like it would be impossible <laughs> to try and to try and get those numbers. And so I know I know if I brought those numbers and tried to find a deal with it within these parameters over in the Bay Area, it would be slim to none, right? Well, so, originally, you know, I was looking in Tampa, and I still I still that I am the Tampa guy on our team, and I'm constantly looking at deals in Tampa. And you know, you're looking at a five six cap four and a half cap even, you know, and the lower the cap rate is going to mean lower risk uh, because it's a more stable market. So where you, when you, we're in New York, you know, we're looking at a two, two cap, three cap, and those returns are not going to provide any value for investors. There's no way that I can get people to invest in a two cap or, or if they're getting, you know, just a couple percentage points or just barely hitting inflation. That's just not what my investors are going to be looking for. Now, an institutional investor, people coming in with a ton of money, Possibly foreign money, possibly. So we're always looking for something that is going to, you know, I guess, excite our investors and it's got to beat inflation minimum. And it's got to also do well against competitive against the stock market. 
because you know the stock market you can get good returns but then there are the downside which people don't like of the risk you know so there's less risk in multifamily and if you can come close to hitting the returns of the stock market you can get people interested so you're saying that even if you don't live in this in 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 your market that you want you could still invest in great multifamily assets out of state Mm. Uh, through syndications or joint ventures. Uh, for, for some of my listeners that don't necessarily know what a syndication is, can we dive into uh, the syndication structure that you guys had for this deal? Yeah, so basically a syndication, if you don't know what a syndication is, it's a, a bunch of people putting in money, uh, pooling their money together to buy something that they couldn't necessarily afford on their own. Mm-hmm. And this particular structure, we had eight people on the general partnership side, meaning the management side. That was my, me and seven other people. And we are the managers. It's called the GPs, general partners, or the uh, sponsors of the deal. And we are in charge of running and managing the, the, the business. And then there are the limited partners. And we had about 21, I believe. 21 or 23 or something limited partners who came in uh, with no say no let's call it no voting rights right they just came in as basically (laughs) passive investors to put their money in and get a return and not have to work or do any work for it now there are benefits to each uh being each a passive and a an active investor so as an active investor as a general partner you are taking you know, you're taking on the responsibility of make, making sure that you execute the business plan. You have to be knowledgeable on real estate. You have to be the one who knows how to run the business. And you're also signing on the loan or somebody on the general partnership side is signing on the loan and taking on that risk as well. So on the limited partnership side, you really don't have to do anything but trust the general partner. And uh, you're just putting your money in and all you could possibly or potentially lose would be your entire investment. Uh, so nobody's coming after you to, to get any other assets, you know, to take your house or anything like that as a limited partner, because you're technically buying, let's call it stock or securities in the building or in the business. So you can only lose what you put in, which is excellent in a lot of people's minds, you know, and on the general partnership side, there is the possibility of losing more, you know, but, uh, typically when you get over a million dollar loan, there are, it's a, it's an a non-recourse loan. So they typically can't go after your, your personal assets, but somebody has got to be liable and responsible to sign that loan. So you typically get somebody who's got a high net worth uh, to sign on that loan. Now, what type of asset was, was this an A-class asset, B-class asset? Was it a, a C-class asset? Yeah. So there are two properties in this portfolio. It's a two uh, property portfolio. One is 146 unit and the other is a 48 unit. And they're both in Columbus in the same County. One is in a B B plus area and the other one is in a C, C minus area. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are renovating both uh, properties as we speak. We uh, we actually dropped occupancy in the 146 unit in the C area. We dropped occupancy to 65% after notifying people, you know, that we were going to be making X changes and the rents were going to be raised X amount. And um, we dropped occupancy. Now we're at 65% occupied. And we're still earning, you know, there's still, uh, there's still meat on the bone there. We're still getting some income from it, <laughs> but we knew that this was going to happen. And, and, you know, it was kind of like ripping off the bandaid, getting rid of the people that weren't going to be paying, getting rid of the people that have not had their, their rents upped in the past 12 years. And, um, and other people at the property actually came and thanked us for this because we're getting rid of a lot of the riffraff, which is important. Mm. And the, uh, so what we did was we sent in our construction team. They drove up from uh, Miami 
because a couple of our partners have a construction team from Miami. They drove up, renovated 40 something units, you know, in the first month, which is <laughs> awesome. You know, there's no way to get that done without, you know, basically having a mass exodus like this. And I got all those renovated and now they're coming online to be released, I think this week. So we're doing pretty good with that. And then the other property is, uh, you know, it, did, it didn't drop occupancy that much. I think we're 75% occupied, but the same concept, you know, getting rid of the people that shouldn't necessarily be there or can't pay or don't want to pay and are just causing problems on the property and bringing in people that are going to be good tenants. Wow. And it sounds like you're really trying to improve the community as well. It's not just like, Hey, let me, let me take all this money and, and, and be the landlord. You're actually improving the, the tenants living conditions there. Um, but something I, I, I thought was really fascinating was the fact that you're still able to, to make a profit when the, when the entire, when all 194 units, well, not all, all 194 units, but when they're only 65% occupied, because I feel like it's, that is unheard of for, for single family. If, if I had like 10 homes and 50% are occupied, I'd lose five tenants. I have to figure out how to pay those mortgages for five different homes. Mm -hmm. And that is what I truly love about just the power of multifamily is the fact that the spread, uh, the risk is spread across all these different tenants. Um, now when yeah. you were, yeah, when you were renovating, uh, these units, were were these mostly cosmetic? Were they were these big capex capex expenses, air conditioning units? Uh, what was that like? No, so we basically well we did full remodels, you know, kitchen, bath, flooring. We did everything in the units. Uh, the capex items we really didn't have to do much of. So the we thought that we were going to go into the smaller, the forty eight unit, and have to redo the roofs. But it appears that we have more time on the roof, so we didn't have to do that. <clears throat> we did some. So we did the interiors, basically everything, kitchens, bathrooms, flooring, all the new stuff, mm -hmm. make it look nice. And, uh, and on the exterior of the larger unit in the C-class area, the 146 unit, we did uh, remove the pool that was there and, and broken down for years. Um, we, we put in a dog park. We put in a park for kids. We put a fence around the area and just really wow. did a lot of grooming as far as landscaping is concerned. Wow. Yeah. So, so making the, the property look nice, but then also improving the, the units full, full on out. Now, when you guys were improving the units, well, let me backtrack on that because it's actually going to be ongoing is, so, you know, as people move out, we're going to be renovating all the units, but we, we were able, luckily, lucky enough to, you know, renovate all 40 something, you know, 41 or 42 in a quick shot, which was really nice. So were the ones that you were renovating, were they, were these, uh, were the rents below market? Yeah, got significantly. It. And, you know, that's another reason why we bought this property. We got it. So the the rent, the, the uh, selling seller comps, right, were at 73000 a door. And we bought this property at 40000 a door. So we got a significant discount. And that's wow. another reason why a break-even occupancy is, is good. You know, I think it's 50-something percent where we can still, where, we, where we're fine, uh, which is, you know, a, a big safety net, especially during this time of COVID when everybody's worried about being able to lease up, um, you know, the units. So, yeah, so, you know, the, the, we, we weren't necessarily worried about the drop in occupancy because of the fact that, you know, we, we were expecting it and we knew that this property needed this, the, the big one in particular needed a huge facelift and needed to get rid of a lot of the people that were causing problems on the property. And, 
you know, something I want to, I want to touch on as well is when you were improving these properties and bringing these, uh, these markets up to, up to rent, uh, up to market rent, you're actually forcing the appreciation on the property f- mm. for, for the, for the entire hold. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that's what you asked before. So, so yeah. So there's a significant upside. We're looking at like a $200 upside in, in some of the rents, which is awesome, you know, and, and you know, everybody claims that they can get X amount of money upside, but when, when it's, and it's still yet to be seen for us, but we're pretty confident in that because there's been a lot of interest in the property during a pre-lease up stage. So we're confident that we could at least achieve a hundred, a hundred dollars rent increase on some of the units and then 200 plus on some other units. Uh, so yeah, there's definitely room for, for upside and you're right. Once you, by increasing (laughs) X amount and increasing the NOI, your valuation goes skyrocketing also. So depending on the cap rate, there's a calculation of how much, you know, you know, I don't know exactly offhand, but like, you know, the, the higher the cap rate, the, the lower the, the valuation, right. The increase in valuation is, but the lower the cap rate, the higher the valuation is, but regardless, by increasing the NOI, you're increasing the the overall, uh, I guess, profitability and value of the, and value of the property. Right. Yeah. Which is very different than single family. I feel like when, when people are buying and holding for, for single family homes, um, there's it, it, I mean, they, they can fix up the property, make it look nice, but at the end of the day, there's not really, um, a, a certain way to know, like a strong confirmation saying like this property is going to appraise for this value. It really just depends on how much uh, the other houses next to them are selling. Whereas it sounds like for multifamily apartments, it's valued more as a business based on their, their income, their expenses. And if you increase their income, then the value of the property goes up. And so essentially you're really forcing the appreciation for this building. That's that's good to know. Yeah, man. That's one of the beauties of multifamily, right? You can force (laughs) it, right? Exactly. You can put all this money and time into a single family or duplex, but if it's, it's going to trade at what the market is, is trading for and that you're kind of susceptible to that. And obviously you can definitely win big on that too, but it's, it's kind of um, like I said, susceptible to factors that are outside of your control. So uh, I did want to touch on uh, some of the questions that when, when you were raising money for this deal, if you don't mind, can we, can we touch on the, the challenges of what it's like raising, raising capital for that deal? Yeah, man, it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So like, you know, I originally went into the, went into multifamily thinking I was just going to be doing JVs, you know, starting as a general, as a, as, sorry, as a joint venture with some friends. And, um, and that wasn't the case on this first deal, but I loved the deal so much. I said, I got to get into it. And I didn't necessarily prepare myself or my investors properly to be able to raise capital, right? So this was a 506B um, offering, mm-hmm. meaning that we couldn't, you know, we had, that we couldn't advertise, we couldn't solicit, mm-hmm. right? So right. it was just between the, the investor base that I already had. And I, I had, oddly enough, a 300 something list of email list, you know, and what you're always trying to grow, you always want to be growing your email list so that, and, and be communicating with uh, your investors or potential investors and letting people know what you're up to and what you're doing so that they can over time take you seriously. And ho- part of that also should be educating them onto what, you know, multifamily is and what a syndication is so that when the time comes that you have a deal, you can basically rely on them to invest with you. And I was going through this whole process thinking that I was just going to JV anyway, and I didn't put enough emphasis on my education of my investors and 
yeah, I do my podcast and I expect people to listen, but they don't have to. I, and I also do the meetup, which I, which is also educational based, but it's like, I was never individually talking to people saying, you know, answering their individual questions or, or needs. And when it came time for me to say, Hey, all right, I have a deal. Do you want to invest? People just went silent for not only for that reason, but for the reason that, you know, COVID and towards the end of the year, and it was an election year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a, a, a sore point with people. They didn't want to talk about investing in anything. And I started the conversation with people. I did, I, you know, I started calling people one-on-one, just gauging their interest and I didn't get much traction, but I got a few and that was enough for me to say, okay, I'm going to do this. And I, I think I can, can jump on this team. So my task on this team is investor relations and marketing. Right. But I also mm-hmm. had to bring in some money because I didn't have enough money to bring in what they needed personally. So mm-hmm. I had to raise some from my investors. Now, if I were to do it all over again, I would have started conversations, serious conversations, you know, asking for soft commits on no deal that I've ever had in the past. You know what I mean? Just saying, how much would you be willing to all of my investors to invest in a deal if I got a deal today, right? Starting that conversation, kind of setting a fire underneath them saying, hey, look, this is real. This is going to happen at some point. What would you be willing to invest? This would have given me a better idea of how much I could possibly raise because I really only had a few weeks to do it. And I was scrambling, calling everybody. I did a webinar, you know, and just reaching out to everybody that I could. And um, I did decent. Okay. But for my, for me personally, (laughs) I wish I could have done better. You know what I mean? Hey, at the end of the day, it's it's still got closed. So I still think there's there's a success in that. Uh, yeah, congrats. So so what? Uh, I'm curious though. What was like one of the most common questions that you had when you're raising capital? Yeah. So a lot of people. There are a couple of things. So the the first issue with this was that we had closed. We bought this building cash. Uh, we had a guy that was part of our team that was able to buy it cash. That's how we got such a good offer, a good deal on it. And then we were looking to refi. So we didn't even, so we closed in August and we were looking to raise capital in September, October, November, and there was no real cutoff, you mm-hmm. know, so it was, it was confusing for people. On top of that, there were eight people on the general partnership side when a lot of people are used to seeing, you know, one, two, three, or four people on the general partnership side. We have eight. So those two things were were confusing for people. And then on top of that, the third question was like, well, what is what's going to happen with Corona? How are you? How are you? How do you think you're going to be able to increase rents the way you're claiming you can? You know, the, the standard questions. But the first two questions were not typical. You know, how did how is this structure happening? How did you buy the deal? And how come now you're looking to, to raise capital for it? And then the second question, how come there are eight people on the team? Hmm. I feel like that's, that's, those are very specific questions that, you know, I don't often hear, but, but what, cause, cause when it, what, I feel like there's, there's this narrative when it comes to like raising capital, just easy, like, oh, the people really buy the deal. But um, like, if it's a good deal, the numbers make sense. People are just going to buy it. But it, it really shows that there's a huge emphasis on the management team and the operators. And there really has to be that trust with them. Absolutely, man. Even if so, it's funny, then I started looking at it, somebody, you know, shortly after was like, Hey, do you want to help me on this deal with a 506c? You can come on, you can come on as a co sponsor. And as a 506c, you can solicit, right? So Mm -hmm. I called 70 people in a weekend. And these were known investors 
who were ready to, to dish out money and I got zero response. And the reason is it comes back to they need to know, like, and trust you. So even if it's a 506C, even if you can solicit and advertise, it doesn't mean that people are going to invest with you, which was a huge lesson for me, which means that those, that investor base that I have really just needs to be nourished and, and educated so that they are ready to invest. It doesn't matter if they are professional investors or new investors. You just have to be, you know, in their face, showing that you're, you're constantly working for them, showing that you are somebody that's willing to work for them and to grow and, and somebody that's going to be in this business for a long time, as opposed to just some person that they don't know. So they have to know you, right? They have to like you and they have to trust you. Even if they're a professional investor, they're not just going to throw money at you, even if it's a good deal, which this was a good deal. So 70 people didn't wow. like the deal. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they were investors who had signed up on a list to be, you know, contacted for investments. And they make it seem so easy on the, on the TV shows and, and when people are <laughs> saying 5 million in 30 days. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, I'm actually going to join that summit. I'm excited for that. Hunter Tom, Tom Thompson's doing yeah. that, right? Yeah, now, I'm here's going the to thing. that one too. <laughs> it's important, man. Yeah, and, and you got to be cognizant and, and consciously looking and actively cultivating the culture of, of people investing with you. And yeah, it's possible at, one, at some point in, in our career, but as, you know, beginning syndicators, if people don't know, like, and trust you and you have no track record, it's going to be very difficult to raise capital. So the deal does not come first that you got to get the money first and then you find the deal. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, I've looked at it both ways and I was like, yeah, the best deal, if I, if I get, if I can get people a 30 IRR, you know, and, and triple their money in five years, they're going to just jump on the deal. Not necessarily. It's not, not the case. Necessarily. Yeah. Well, um, something, cause, cause we've been throwing concepts and definitions out there <laughs> left and right. And I'm not necessarily sure if any of my listeners know. So first off for the difference between a 506 C and a 506 B 506 C you can publicly advertise, but you have to be an accredited investor to advertise the deal and to be an accredited investor. I believe you have to make 200,000 uh, or more a year, unless you're married, then you have to make 300,000 or have, uh, or have a, um, a net worth of a million dollars, uh, aside from your primary residence. But, and so once you can, once you're, you have those accredited investor credentials, then you can publicly advertise. Whereas for a 506 B you have to have a pre-exempting substantial relationship with the person. You can't advertise publicly. You have to really focus in on, on the relationship with your limited partners or with your investors that you're trying to raise money for. And with the 506B, so you got to be cognizant of keeping track of your conversations. And, and what I do is like, once I have somebody sign up for my mailing list, I'll reach out to them either through an email or through a phone call and then just document it. So you keep a little tracker sheet of who you talked to and what you spoke about. And that's basically good enough, you know, as long as you continue to, you know, communicate with them and they know who you are, you can't just on a five or six B, let's say, just call up some, some person randomly and say, Hey, you want to invest in my deal? Right. Uh, it's just not going to fly with the sec. And then no. you're right on the five, on the five or six C <laughs> side, you're, you're limiting yourself to only accredited investors, which could be a good or bad thing. Yeah. You know, so those are correct. That means you can't get your friends and family in or a lot of them in, you know? Yeah. And I feel like with, you know, since, since you're, um, you being a teacher that that's, you, you already know how much money you can make, but the fact that you still were able to jump into some of these deals and still create passive income and multiple streams of income and um, benefit from the tax advantages and the force appreciation, I feel like it's just a solid 
asset and investment um, for the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and especially for for people like me and my network here in the Bay Area, um, when they where they where they I, f- I feel like there's um, there's sort of this narrative that there's only one choice in investing in real estate in your backyard, and it's really hard to get into, um, even for millennials that are paying rents and probably will take forever to buy a home. I feel like this would be a great option for people that want to invest in real estate that just can't because of their market. Yeah. So we're actually going to be talking to somebody named Jonathan Farber. He's going to join our meetup in January. Uh, if you, if this happens after January, that's okay. We could still have this conversation, but we're going to be discussing uh, the millennial, the millennial investor, right? So how to really cultivate the relationship between millennials, which is the largest group right now in the country and um, you know, utilize them as an investor base. So that should be interesting. I'm definitely, I'm actually already registered. <laughs> I'm going to the, to the meetup. So I'm, I'm excited to, I'm excited to hear that right now. So, so what are you focusing on right now? So you have this, the, this deal in Ohio, you said you're meant, you're, you're looking over in Tampa. What's, what's the focus over there? Yeah. So in Tampa, you know, we're still looking at about anywhere from 15 to a hundred units basically. And mm-hmm. depending on the size will depend on how we structure the deal. Um, you know, Recently, we were looking at a 16 unit and looking at doing it as a JV, but with seller finance, because I have one guy on my team who specializes in seller financing and that fell through, uh, which you'll learn, man, a lot of deals just don't happen. We've offered on so many deals and it just doesn't happen. So in Tampa, I offered on two deals two weeks ago and mm-hmm. um, didn't no traction there either. So then we found a property in Pittsburgh, which we are in discussions with now. And, uh, and I'm not in the Pittsburgh market, but one of my partners is. So like we have different people on our team that are in different markets and specialize in different markets. And I'm hoping to nail one in Tampa for the team at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it. It's going to be coming. But I think it's so cool that you're, you're still able to invest all around the market, but still be in New York just because of, of your teammates and how all of y'all are so spread out. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, but you got so you got to have connections in your in that market. You got to be there for a while. You got to network with the people down there. And like I have somebody who, or various people rather, that I can call and say, "Can you go walk walk this property for me? Can you go drive by it?" And they do that. So that's important too. Typically, I, I've been utilizing a partner or a pro, a property manager to do that. I mean, it just sounds like there's so much there's there's a lot of work, right? And I you know I I do want to just. I feel like I'm just emphasizing this a lot is the fact that if, if people still want to invest in real estate and don't want to do any of that work to walk the property or go through those heartbreaking moments of not getting the deal uh, or, or deal with toilets and, and bad tenants, you know, they still can invest with you in some great assets where they can focus on their time and what they want to focus on with minus the headache. There's sort of, there, there's this narrative, like you're, there's an emphasis on just really the, the, the passive investors have all the benefits that, that an active investor does just without the headache. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true, you know, and it's such a great point. And there are so many people that I've seen that want to be active investors. And then on their first deal, they're like, oh my God, I can't do this. <laughs> and then they want to go back to just being a passive investor. And some people don't have the resources to be a passive investor, but on the flip side, you're going to need some resources to be an active investor too, but you can make that last longer if you're doing the work, you know, if you're working, you're, you're an active investor and you're working for it, you can always find ways to get compensated. Right. So as a passive investor, 
I know people that are professional passive investors and it's like they have so much capital to put in and that's all they want to do is be passive and put some money here, some money there, and then they live off their returns, which is awesome and ideal, but I'm not at that stage and I don't know if I ever will be. So for the time being, or for at least for the next 10, 15 years, I'm going to be actively, you know, managing properties. No, that's cool. But I'm, I'm excited for, for those next 10 to 15 years because I, I feel like it's, you know, the, the amount of growth that, that can happen and the amount of units it's going to be going to be the next Joe Fairless, the even better, yeah. the, the Nico Zalgado. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Are there, so are there, so, so you're looking over in Tampa, are there any like different nuances that you've seen compared to the deal that you did over in Cleveland and Columbus? Or, sorry, yeah. in Columbus. Yeah, that's okay. So the, yeah, man. So it's very different. You know, you got to look at the construction in Tampa. Typically we're looking for uh, concrete block construction in Tampa due to the weather and the, the, you know, the hurricanes that go by. Um, mm -hmm. We're looking at a certain build. We're looking at eighties plus because of the, you know, the interior, that means anything before 1980s was probably using copper piping uh, for the plumbing. And that could be dam. It can get damaged easy. There could be problems. It can be caught. It can be costly. Right. Uh, we're looking at not, what's called cardinal construction. So down in the Southeast in the eighties, there was, even though we're looking at eighties builds and newer, there was a lot of what's called cardinal construction. There was a team that will go down and, and basically manufacture homes, which was di done differently than it is today. So I was recently trying to offer on a property down there. It was a 93 unit uh, property mm -hmm. in actually Orlando. And my lender said, we're not even going to lend on this because it's cardinal construction. And I said, you know, I've heard this so many times before. Explain to me why. And he said, because the, and it's not, it's a case by case situation, uh -huh. but they won't even look at it to lend on because of there's been so many cases of, of problems with the foundation. So when they brought the manufactured homes in, they placed them basically not even on a foundation. And a lot of times the foundations or the pseudo foundation caved in or cracked and, and just caused so many problems so that, you know, getting it insured was a problem also. So we stay away from cardinal construction. And then obviously you got to dive into each neighborhood because there are some neighborhoods that are exploding and doing great and some neighborhoods that are just not, you know, and really I rely on people that are down there to help me with that local knowledge you know besides all the research that i do yeah i never even would have even heard of cardinal i actually haven't even heard of cardinal construction i feel like that's just a, such a niche uh, in itself so that no that's really fascinating um i do want to move move forward though for this next section of the show that i call creator's corner so we dive deeper into the artist's mind and then you know your mind and background i ask eight questions that start out simple and get more complex if we, as we go down the way um, just because like for me, I feel like it's just so important to know you as an operator and, and um, just, I, I feel like it's just a great way to establish trust and build that connection. I'm going to get a, get to know more about you. Uh, so Love first it. question. Yeah. Worst, first question. What is your favorite hobby or sport? We kind of touched on this, but I, I have a, I have a strong guess of what it is. <laughs> it's surfing, man. <laughs> it's surfing. Did you go surfing before this? Uh, not today. No, I actually haven't been in a couple of weeks, but the waves were really good yesterday. It was Christmas though. So I didn't do it. <laughs> no, okay. Fair enough. Got to spend time with the family. <laughs> Understandable. Yep, yep. Uh, okay. Favorite movie. Oh man. All right. What are we going to say? Uh, there's a lot, but yeah, you know, I haven't watched the movie in a long time. I'm just going to go with something simple, something classic Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. That is a classic movie. <laughs> classic movie. Great movie. Okay. Uh, favorite real estate book. 
Uh, a lot. You know, I love real estate books. I guess one that was the most pivotal for me, I'll use that. Uh, I read it twice. So it, it was Joe Fairless's book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like the best ever apartment syndication book or something like that. And I read that twice and that was, you know, a year and a half ago. And that's really what propelled me into learning about multifamily. multifamily. No, that's a really great book. I just, uh, I'm still in the middle of it. Um, but I, it, it, there's so much value and content just in that he really just walks through the entire process. So I highly recommend that book mm-hmm. to my listeners. So right now for, for question number four, what skill are you currently trying to improve on? Yeah. So capital raising, um, capital what raising. I'm doing now is, you know, really trying to cultivate a, a, you know, my investor base in through, I want to do like, I want to send out to all my investors, instead of just a newsletter, instead of my blog, I also want to send out videos of mm-hmm. me teaching simple points here and there so that, you know, over the coming months that they get fairly educated fairly quickly on things that they need to know. You know, I'm also putting together a, um, I'm calling it a cheat sheet for investors so that they can have like access to something on one page and see X, Y, and Z, how the process works for them, what the benefits are, key terms that they need to know, what to look for in a sponsor. And I'm going to try to fit it all on one page. So <laughs> it's going to be a challenge, but I think I can do it. Really, really tiny print. <laughs> I used to do it in college where you have, you, they give you a note card and um, <laughs> you just write as small as you can to get all Four the Four fonts, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm excited. Yeah, no, actually, I love your videos. I, I remember there's that video where you're talking about, about for as a passive investor, uh, where you know you can still gain experience uh, investing passively first, um, and then you learn as you go. So I think mm-hmm. I actually I, I love that video. I learned I learned too. <laughs> cool man, thank you. So uh, for question number five, who's your biggest role model? I'm gonna say my co- my current coach, Mike Taravella, is my biggest role model, and you know he's a guy who went from doing single family investing, you know, to focus and, and being an accountant to leaving that he joined the Jake and Gino team as a, the asset manager. So managing a hundred plus million dollar portfolio, Oof. looking for his own deals at the same time. He's, he's part of a mastermind and he signed up, for, you know, I, <laughs> I locked him down for one day a week where every single week we talk and we just riff and, and just talk about whatever we're, we're dealing with or whatever we're, we're, we're working on at that time, or just, stuff you know as friends so he's my mentor and he's also the biggest inspiration for me right now yeah i haven't had the pleasure to to talk with him but i've only heard amazing things about about mike i listened to him on the uh ran cre show and the, the amount of knowledge that he has he also seems very young how I'm, I'm very curious how old is he i don't know man i think he's in his 20s but he, he is pretty young and he's making it happen man just such a smart knowledgeable open kind of guy you know yeah no absolutely absolutely i hope to hope to talk to him someday in the, in the near future, but yeah, thank you for sharing. What is one thing that you're doing now that you would say is outside of your comfort zone? A lot, um, man, everything <laughs> is, you know, the, the, the meetup, the podcast, you know, talk, calling investors, asking people for money, you know, everything's out of my comfort you know, zone and uh, it's okay. I, it's just, it's making me better every time, like every call that I get off of, I'm like, wow, that went great. Or I take notes and I reflect, but yeah, talking to people about and asking for money is way out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Only, only like pocket change, usually $50,000. <laughs> yeah, I got that in my closet over here. <laughs> yeah. No problem. 
<laughs> okay, good to know. Good to know. What advice would you give to yourself if you had to do it all over again? I know, granted, you, you were still pretty early on, but um, yeah. So, so if you were to do do this all over again, what would you do differently? Just be open. I would tell myself to be open to the fact that I need to. Uh, first of all, realize that I need a team, that I can't do it on my own. And that would have got me into the game sooner. And then be just cultivate the things that I like and that I'm good at. So apparently people think that I'm good at or decent at marketing and social media and that stuff. And and a lot of people that I've been connecting with don't like, don't even like that aspect. And it's funny. It's like, I just assumed everybody liked to do it. And I was like, there's no way anybody's <laughs> going to want me on as a, as a social mark, social media marketer, you know? Uh, but I think that that's actually where I'm fitting into teams now and, and you know, as we move forward. So stick to, I would tell myself, be open to being a part of a team and then stick to what you like and what you're good at and cultivate the crap out of that. Really leveraging your strengths instead of mm -hmm. your, instead of focusing on your weaknesses. Oh, I love mm -hmm. that. And teamwork makes a dream work. That's right, my man. Absolutely. Years from now, how do you want your family and friends to remember you? Yeah. So I really want to be a role model. You know, I want my daughter to see me as somebody that basically came from nothing and utilized what I call my small acts and the tools that I have sharpen those tools to create a giant empire. Right. I want them to remember me as somebody who is not only trustworthy with integrity, hard worker, but somebody who is giving and I give everything to everybody. I'm, you know, my focus isn't even on how much I can make. My focus is on being the role model that my daughter needs to see so that she knows that there are options in this world, that she knows that she can do basically whatever she wants to do and accomplish whatever she wants to accomplish just by me being that person. So, and it's, that's my motivating factor. That's my why for, that's my reason to wake up and, and hustle every single day is to show my daughter what can be done on this planet. <laughs> After the show, please, please show her this, this clip. Um, I don't know. How, how old is your daughter? She's only five. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, but, but even then though, I think that's, that, that was just beautifully said. And, and, you know, even if she doesn't understand it, that whole clip now, like I definitely want you to show her that clip later on. Cause I mean, what you're doing, I, I think it's very inspirational. Um, as a father, as a, as a mentor, as a coach, it's just everything that you're doing. So now yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Thanks, Taylor. How, how can people get a hold of you? I, I would say the best way is to go to my website. It is the, it's called smallaxcommunities.com, smallaxecommunities.com. And uh, from there, you could book a call with me. You can email me. You know, you can reach out to me through phone. I got my phone number on there. So that's the best way. So smallaxcommunities.com. And you'll also find my uh, my Instagram handle, my Facebook handles, you know, you know, LinkedIn also. But if you go to my website, you get everything. So yeah. jump on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. I'll put those. I'll put this. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, definitely reach out to it. reach out to Nico. Listen to his podcast, Small X Podcast. It's a great show. He brings on great guests, and he is definitely going to be a huge player. In, in this game leading forward. He's only, there's only growth coming up from here. So reach out to him, Small X Communities. Thank you so much, Nico, for having, for, for coming on to the show. And you know we'll, we'll be in touch. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks for listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. 
If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.